0: Hi guys, welcome back to the Earthly Delights podcast. We hope you've had a great Christmas and you're looking forward to the new year. For our first podcast, we've got a really special guest, Richard Moore. Richard Moore grew up in Derry, Northern Ireland, and as a child grew up during the Troubles and was shot by a British soldier losing his right eye and becoming blind in his left eye. This is his story about forgiveness. I hope you enjoy.
1: Richard Moore, welcome to the Earthly Delights podcast. Thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Good to meet both of you.
1: No, it's an absolute pleasure. Um, First, first and foremost, we have to ask, or we want to ask, what's the crack with you? (laughs) Well,
2: the crack's good at the minute. Um, I suppose um, it's we're living in a a kind of a a world at the minute that's sort of changing almost by the minute between um, between the whole COVID and the impact of that on our daily lives, and then. Of course, um, Brexit is not far away as well. And living here where I live in Derry in Northern Ireland, then, no, the Brexit is very significant because we live on the border to the Republic of Ireland and it's very topical here. And then, of course, how the COVID's impacting in all our lives uh, in terms of your your own personal social side of your life. And then, obviously, your work and life as well. Um, So, you know, it's it's been quite a challenging time in terms of sort of trying to keep on top of everything um, Mm. whilst whilst looking after yourself in the middle of it all. Yeah, absolutely. You know? I I know you're a
1: very social man, Richard. Has it been particularly difficult for you given the the recent restrictions?
2: Yes, it has. Um, There's been kind of, you know, positive And minuses about it um, are positive and negatives. Um, You know, in some ways, um, you know, I never ever imagined that I could work from home. I'm one of these people that, you know, likes to get up in the morning, get out, go to work, and, you know, have that sense of purpose uh, Mm. in that way, getting up, leaving the house, and going to work. And I've always said, I can't understand how people work from home. Mm. But I found myself working from home. The first week or two, I have to say, it was a significant sort of mental adjustment. Yeah. Um, and uh, the only way that I could tackle it was by imposing a routine on myself. Mm. And, you know, uh, so I, I, that's how I worked from home. But I found myself after a couple of weeks, you know, actually almost... Enjoying it, I'll not say entirely enjoyed it, but I could say that I I I, I did begin to relax a it. and then socially, you know, I do socialize quite a bit. I love travel, absolutely. I love all the things people hate. I love airplanes. I love airports. I love buses and trains, and <laughs> I love go going, going places. You know, and for me, a part of going anywhere is the journey. You know I love the journey I love from the moment I get a taxi from the house or get a lift and the, go to the train and all of that so all those things I enjoy and they all suddenly stopped got out for a bite to eat got out for a a pint you know um going to um you know travel and you know I probably travel normally around three or four months a year so uh, with work and between work and holidays and leisurely thing so all of those things all stopped suddenly and um, I do still miss all that you know
0: yeah um, I mean I, I think we all do but it was quite philosophical that you love the journey almost more than the destination I feel like we could take that into all of our lives um...
2: ah, that's true I mean to <laughs> me, to me I, I, from the minute I step out to the work that's my journey started and I love every element of it and I suppose for a blind person you know, um, I don't know if that's the case, but maybe I just sometimes think it is that, especially when I travel on my own, that I get to engage with people on a one-to-one basis. Um, and I love that opportunity. Whereas if I travel with somebody, mm. then uh, you don't get to engage in the same way. So I, I, I love that as well.
0: Brilliant, brilliant. Richard, I wondered before we get into um, the the... Uh, hard questions. Could you just start telling us about yourself or maybe anyone who isn't familiar with you and your story?
2: Okay well um, my name is Richard Moore and uh, I come from a place called Derry in Northern Ireland. Um, I've lived here all my life. I'm 59 years of age now so I was born in 1961 and I grew up in a, a sort of a housing area called the Craigan Estate. That was an area of social housing. And I I, I grew up there. And around um, 1968, 69, what was a peaceful place to live became a violent place to live. It was at the epicentre of the Northern Ireland conflict. Shootings, riots, Bombings became almost a daily occurrence. And um, outside our front door, for example, all the pavements were dug up and broken up and used as missiles to throw at the British Army or the police. Or they built barricades at the end of each street. So you would have had these barricades, you know, a a big housing area of around 15,000 people, and you would have had... Barricades at the end of each street, made out of the broken rubble, or you know, hijacked vehicles like buses, trucks, cars. They were hijacked, put across the road, and burned, and cemented under these barricades. So it seemed like overnight to me, all that began to happen, and um, and then um, the Cregan. And the bog side, which who were which were beside each other, became what was officially known as a no-go area, and that basically meant the British Army or the police weren't welcome into those areas. So the barricades were built to prevent the military or the police from infiltrating the area easily. And um, then in January '72 you had Bloody Sunday. Mm. It happened on the streets of the Bogside and um, 13 people were killed by the British Army during people who had attended a a protest march. You know, most of my family were on that march. Um, My my uncle Jared was shot dead that day, my mother's brother. And then, you know, at least, you know, four or five of the people who were shot dead that day lived within 30 seconds' walk of my house. So the craigan the Bogside, Derry, Northern Ireland became a very volatile place. And the weeks and months that followed, 1972 was probably one of the most violent years of the Northern Ireland conflict. And um, I think it's down to Bloody Sunday. Bloody Sunday kicked off the worst year of violence in Northern Ireland. My school was Rosemount Primary School. And Rosemount Primary School was on the edge of the Craigan. And beside the school was a police station. So here you had a police station at the edge of a no-go area. An area that was patrolled mainly by the IRA. And our school was right beside it. So the police station was a target for the IRA and target for rioters on a daily basis. On the 4th of May 1972, I got out of school as normal. And me and my friends were racing along the bottom of the school soccer pitch. I was only 10 years of age at the time. And there was a British Army lookout post positioned at the bottom of the school uh, football pitch, and the Army were there to protect the police station. And as I ran past that Army lookout post, a British soldier fired a rubber bullet. I was 10 feet away. It hit me in the bridge of the nose. And um, I lost my right eye and was permanently blinded on my left eye. So I've been blind now. 48 years. And, um, I, I, and you know, my life since then has been, you know, uh, really very rich in many ways. You know, um, I responded quite positively to blindness and being shot. I bounced back very well. And I eventually went back to my primary school, then went on to the the secondary school, went to university, got my degree. Uh, I got married in 1984. I have two children, Neve and Enya. Neve's 30 years of age now. Enya's 28. And um, I did a lot of things after it was shot. I, I, um, I was compensated by the British government, and we half the money. I bought a house. and with the other half, half, I bought a pub. And then I bought a second pub. So by the time I was 20 years of age, I owned two pubs in the centre of Derry. So when I come out of university, I went straight in to run my own business. I had an office above one of the pubs. And I I ran my own business for about 14 years. I um, also learned how to play the guitar. And I, you know, set up a folk choir that sing at uh, church every Saturday night. It's about 20 female singers and a couple of musicians. And, um, you know, I I um, had a recording studio and stuff like that. I had a great interest in football. I became a director of Derry City Football Club for a couple of years. And um, and as you know, Derry City is the biggest club on the planet, so it's great <laughs> to be out there. And, um, you know, I... Uh, i um i suppose um i i would attribute my ability to bounce back from being shot and blinded uh you know and such a, i bounce back in such a positive way and i would attribute that to the fact that i come from a good family the fact that i come from a good community and um the fact that I was able to go back to school and get an education for myself. So um, it was that factor that influenced me to eventually um, uh, sell out. You know, it was that fa- factor that eventually, you know, encouraged me to kind of sell out the business and set up an organization called Children and Crossfire because i realized that every child given the right support every child given the right opportunity in life no matter how difficult it may seem can bounce back and grow and blossom and contribute in a positive way to the lives to their own life and to the lives of others so i set up children in crossfire in 1996 and today that's the organization that I run. I'm speaking to you from the in Crossfire office. And, um, you know, we're going almost 25 years now, and we work in Tanzania and Ethiopia, supporting projects that provide access to preschool education for children or provide access to food and water, clean water and things like that, health issues. And as well as that, we work in Ireland. We do work in Ireland, you know, through training teachers on methods that they can use in the classroom to get young people to engage with local issues like, you know, like the conflict and also how they respond to issues like poverty and stuff like that, and to get children to engage with that type of thing. So that's my story, as brief as I can make it. (laughs)
1: Thanks for that, Richard. I, I really have so many questions. Um, but the first question that I'd like to ask is, is there someone that you could attribute to like being your inspiration um, after you were shot or growing up? Um, because you mentioned, obviously, the, the family was was huge for you, the family unit, the community mm, unit. Yeah. But I can also imagine that there was a lot of um, anger in, in Derry in the community at the time. And Perhaps if you were maybe surrounded by um, certain people that like held on to this anger rather than what you did, um, that that perhaps uh, I'm I'm interested to know if you think perhaps you would have responded differently if you didn't have uh, such uh, an environment around you. Um, I, I'm I'm sorry if I don't know if I mentioned making this clear.
2: Yeah, no, I get it. Um... Yeah. I, I think that, you know, there's I suppose there's different people come that influence your life or come into your life at different times. And um, I think, you know, I, I should have mentioned that the one significant thing about my story is that I've never had any anger or any hatred or bitterness towards a soldier or towards a British army. And I think that was very important in my ability to not only adjust to blindness and accept blindness, but also in um, my ability to kind of move on in a very happy and contented way. And I am a very happy and contented person. I don't mind being blind, I quite enjoy being blind sometimes. And I always say that I, I can't separate the good things in my life from blankness itself. Now, why is that? I think my parents were remarkable. You know, I just, every day I am grateful and thankful that I had the parents I had. I was totally and utterly blessed. My parents were like, my daddy was an unemployed shoemaker. My mother was what you would describe in modern times now as a, a homemaker. They had 12 children. I was the second youngest, nine boys and three years. They were living in poverty basically, like a lot of families throughout Ireland. And, um, but what we were rich in was love. Our family, our parents, they were, they weren't, they didn't pontificate, they didn't give speeches, they didn't. They were just ordinary, everyday people that just kept a lovely, warm home. We wanted for nothing. We had everything we needed. And they were always there. But despite my mother's brother being murdered by the British Army and me being blinded by the British Army, all in the space of a few months, and all the injustice and the pain, and the hurt that comes with all of that. I never heard him say an angry word. And in fact, I've heard him say the opposite. And, you know, I think that if I need to look to a hero, or heroes, it's right there in my parents' the role that they played in my life was enormous. And, you know, my family reduced the impact of blindness. So why am I positive about blindness? Because blindness didn't have that big of a negative impact on my life. Why is that? Because my family and my friends and my community made sure that any obstacles that were presented in my life were removed, as much as possible. And then that whole sort of quiet message of forgiveness. I reckon my parents would never have described it in that manner, but I reckon they were really compassionate people. And they showed that every day of their lives. And for some reason it just penetrated me mm. and I didn't know that either. So if I'm to have a hero, that's, you know, there. those two are certainly the people that they are the rock that I stand on. You know, they're the people that inspire me every day in terms of how I am with my children, how we should be with each other. And how we should lead our lives. And, you know, one of the things that I realised from that is the significant role that you and me play in the lives of others. You know, like, I was able to forgive the British soldier, I think, because my parents forgave the British soldier. I didn't have any anger because my parents didn't have any anger. Say I had been living in a home where my parents were angry, talking about revenge, talking about locking up the soldier and throwing away the key, and we have to get our own back. I remember one time, one of my brothers, who was about 17 at the time, and I was just out of hospital a month or so. And I was sitting in our living room. And because the house was a small house, I could hear the conversation in the kitchen. And my mother was out there. And my brother was having a real cold at her. And he was saying, in very colourful language that I won't use now, mm-hmm. but he was saying things like, they murdered my Uncle Jared. They blinded Richard it's time to give our own back. Forget about anything else. We need to give her own back on them. And my mother said to him, if you want to help Richard, go on there to that room and help Richard. But you're not helping Richard by hurting somebody else. Mm-hmm. And that was the messages. That was, uh, it was almost like the atmosphere in our house you were surrounded in this bubble of love, compassion, and forgiveness that, that was just there, and it obviously penetrated me. And so I've realized that the role that I play in relation to my children, the role that I play in everything I say, the people listen to this podcast. I realise that people come to a podcast like this for different reasons. They could be struggling. They could be interested in learning something. They could be vulnerable. They could be hurt. So I'm very aware that you know that what I see is hopefully having a positive impact on their next step, on their next thought. So I could be on here saying, hell will never be full until every British soldier is locked up. Hell will never be full until the soldier that blinded me pays for what he did to me. And I will never forgive the man that did it. I don't think I'd be helping anybody else by adopting that attitude. I certainly wouldn't be helping myself. And that's my view. Now, I understand that forgiveness is hard. And I think sometimes we expect too much from victims. We expect victims to lead the way. You know, Mm. show us forgiveness. Show us, you know, how to go forward. And it's not fair to expect that from a victim. But at the same time, what I would say is, look, wherever a victim can and has the strength to do that, then it's a message worth hearing and it's a message worth sharing. Because if I am contented with blindness, if I am happy with blindness, I attributed quite a bit to the lack of anger and the presence of forgiveness in my life. But you're asking about heroes and, you know, I mean, Derry lost someone in the last few months, John Hume. And John Hume is one of my heroes. And why is he one of my heroes? Because, one, he grew up... 10 minutes walk from my house. He was just an ordinary, dirty man living in extraordinary circumstances. And he used every fibre in his body to achieve peace through peaceful means. And he was successful. And he was under a lot of pressure, a lot of criticism, you know, sometimes the winds that blew towards him were very strong, but he held his conviction. And what and what he the, the for me is a hero that came from very humble beginnings, and achieved an enormous amount. And he's an example of what what one person can do. So no matter how small you are, then you know you can achieve a lot. And then, of course, you have people like the Dalai Lama, your friend, fine you which he's you know, have with the privilege of meeting and all that stuff. And, and I, I sometimes, I'm afraid to say it because it sounds like, you know, you know, your your name dropping. <laughs>
0: you know uh, it's,
2: it's, a, it's a pretty uh, nice name drop. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's,
0: that's a top trump. There, I don't think most people okay, are going to do right.
2: that one. It's like somebody said to me day, well, You know, I said to my friend the Dalai Lama. You know, people think I'm always name dropping, <laughs> 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 but uh, I am lucky, privileged. Oh my God! You know, they, they have they have met the Dalai Lama, and to be close to the Dalai Lama and they've had the access to him that I've had since I've met him. But, like, look at his story. You know, you know, like, I had to leave home in exile back in 1959, travelled over the Himalayas, I think, and they ended up living in exile. And look at the example that he has given his people over over many years, what, 50, 60 years um, more, and, uh, you know, in the face of all sorts of provocation, but he's always managed to maintain this message of peace and the peaceful approach. And you know, and he comes under a lot of pressure too. So, there's and there's different heroes in your life that you come across. And um, my parents are obviously first and foremost John Hume and people like the Dalai Lama. Are for me, some of the heroes that I would try to look up to and live up to.
0: That's, I mean, that's beautiful, Richard. And we've got a question here, which um, kind of comes at odds somewhat with what you've just said, because it's clear Uh, from what you've just said that you're very proud of where you've come from your community your family but uh, Jim and I are really interested in the idea of identity and how it informs our behaviors how it informs our feelings and our thoughts for example I mean my British accent, I don't think it's ever been more pronounced than being on a podcast with a Dublin man and a dairy man. So
2: um, <laughs> we'll not hold it again. <laughs> right. And uh,
0: yeah. when, you know, truth be told is that when researching your story and everything else, and obviously now talking to you being an Englishman, I mean, half Englishman, I'll say that, but being an Englishman, it, um, you know, I sometimes, I feel a bit embarrassed and a bit disgusted with what we did, even though obviously it wasn't me personally. And I wondered whether you, because obviously there's a lot of hurt in, uh, in not just in Northern Ireland. We've, I spoke about with Jim before in Ireland, We I get, it's good crack, but you know, you get the little, um, the jokes here and there about me being an Englishman and so on and so forth. And you can still feel there's some, there's some sentiment there. Um, and I wondered if you felt at all, that it was ever necessary to somewhat disconnect with, um, your Northern Irish or your Derry, um, identity to be able to find it within you to number one, not have any anger. And then more than that, to actually look for the British soldier, forgive him and then hold no ill will to the British army. And then the British people in general, someone like myself, do you think there's any credence to that thought, or, or was that not the case in in, in your particular circumstance?
2: Uh, no, I think that um, I think your identity is very important. Know who you are, where you're from. It's a it's a it's a way of grounding you, and, and you're you know giving you a sense of belonging. Mm. Um, but you know, as the world evolves, like I remember just they talk about the Dalai Lama, for example. You know, and 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 one time, I. I remember somebody asking him about, you know, where, you know, where his home is in many ways. And he, he would have, I think he said something like my home is the planet. You know, this is my home. And uh, so in other words, everybody, everybody, whether you be in India, Tibet, Ireland, Europe, America, whatever, they, they, by, by virtue of the world being your home, then all of those people are your family in many ways. Mm-hmm. Now, that might sound a bit sort of airy, fairy, or flowery, but it's it's actually, when you unpack it, it is, means much more than that. I, I don't think you can hold a nation responsible for what some of their people do, what their politicians do. Politicians all over the world make awful decisions and make selfish decisions and make wrong decisions. And, you know, many ways they lack empathy and compassion and stuff like that. And they make decisions for the wrong reasons. Um, so whether you're Irish, whether you're British or American, as much as we like to poke fun at you, the bottom line is that every nation in the world has carried their embarrassments or carried out their acts of, you know, atrocity or whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, and like in Northern Ireland, for example, I come from the nationalist Catholic community. And there were, you know, obviously organizations that emerged out of the conflict here that carried out awful atrocities in our name. And that happened on both sides of the conflict here. And, you know, I think that in many ways you have to try to rationalise that. You have to try to understand that. And you have to be realistic as well. We live in a world where people do respond and people do, um, you know, feel that the only way to um, deal with a An injustice is by creating another injustice. Now, it isn't the answer, it's the wrong answer. But um, that's what some people do. And, uh, uh, you know, I think what we've got to do is try to come up with a a new way. We've got to reprogram people in some ways. And it's probably got to start in our education almost. You know, that, you know, um, I suppose using the example of the British soldier. Charles fired a, British, uh, a rubber bullet at me, at a group of children. There's no justification for that. It's unjustifiable uh, for a soldier to fire a rubber bullet at a group of children, under any circumstances. That can't be explained away. But as Charles a bad person? No, he's not. He's actually a nice person. And you know, so there's some way in some ways you have to separate the action from the actor. Mm. And if you can do that, then it gives you maybe the opportunity to get beyond the incident, beyond the hurt. And I think in a sort of national sense or a community sense. I think it's really painful and awful what people have done. But if, we're, if we're, to move forward in some kind of positive way, you've got to get beyond that. Um, and that's where I think if we can begin to educate children on how they respond. Uh, and again, His Holiness talks about that, about the the need for um, educating the heart. That we've got to begin to respond maybe with compassion, with empathy. Uh, And the hardest part time to do that is when you're responding to someone who's hurt you. Yeah. Or or cause pain. So if you can do that, the way to do it is by seeing past the incident. So if I respond to charge blinding me and firing a rubber bullet. That's one kind of position that you're responding to. But if you can respond to the person and try to understand that, all right, what you did was wrong, but I want to get to know you as a person. I want to understand you as a person. Because behind that rubber bullet gun, behind the uniform, is a human being. And it's not easy. And some people could be listening to this this saying, you know, is he for real? But I've done it. I've done it. And I'm very fond of the soldier that blinded me. I consider him a good friend. And he's not a bad person. But he did a bad thing. So in terms of identity and trying to go back to what you're asking me, then I think you should be very proud of those positive things in your culture, in your community, in your nation. And also acknowledge the not-so-nice things that exist there. But try to find a way that you can learn from it and move on from it. And, and don't allow the negative things to, that your nation's done, that your, your, your tribe is responsible for, to influence how you go forward in a negative way. But to learn from all of that. And that, that's the only thing that I can say. I Identity is very important. But I think if you identify with the good things in your, uh, your nation, then that's going to be more valuable in the long term.
1: Following on, Richard, um, it's actually your friend, the Dalai Lama, I believe, who said that forgiveness is a gift to yourself. And I wanted your opinion on whether you think that people underestimate this potential gift to themselves.
2: Yes, I mean, God, absolutely. Um, You know, uh, I suppose, you know, what, what, what do I think the Dalai Lama uh, means by that? What do I think the Dalai Lama means by that? And what, how does it play itself out in my life? I totally agree with what he says, and I, I, I've experienced it. Um, at the end of the day, look, um, you know, the whole emotion of anger, the whole emotion of bitterness has a negative effect on you. It, it, it has a negative impact on your happiness. And I'm sure it has a negative impact on your health, your physical health. And, you know, if you ever look at an angry person or if you ever even think about when you're angry yourself, do you like that? Do you like what you see in yourself? Do you like what you see in other people? Is it a happy place to be? And the reality is it isn't. And how often have you got angry or I've got angry where even when the anger subsides, that you actually feel bad about yourself, that it's affected your mood, it's affected, you know, the rest of your day because you've responded with anger to somebody or something. And it it, 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 it just had that sort of, put that sort of cloud over your day. Whereas when you... um find forgiveness then you're finding a way that you can deal with the hurt and pain that you've experienced but move on and you're feeling happier because of that Um, you know everybody wants to be happy I think and you know what, what is happiness at the end of the day Is it having a bigger car? Is it having a bigger house? Is it having more holidays or more money? And all those things, I suppose, have their place in your life. But you can have all those things, but you may not be happy. And one of the areas for me that that contribute certainly to my happiness is the fact that um, I forgive the soldier. I feel good about the fact that I forgive the soldier. I don't have that emotion of anger and hatred within me, so I feel good about that as well. And that, to me, contributes enormously to the happy person that I am. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I hope it does.
1: No, that, that was great, Richard. Um I also wanted to ask you on whether you've been able to maybe facilitate this um, forgiveness in in your friends who maybe might be holding some sort of uh, anger yeah, or bitterness within them.
2: Hi, well I mean I I I don't like to give myself the credit of sort of um Changing people's minds or whatever, but mm-hmm. I have I, the reason why I share my story so much is because I think I'm blessed. I think I'm blessed with my family, I think I'm blessed with even blindness, and I'm blessed with the gift of forgiveness, you know. Um, There's two things I would say about forgiveness. One, you've already mentioned. Forgiveness is a gift that you give to yourself. Think of the benefits that you're getting from just forgiving somebody. You know, it is just an amazing experience. But as well as that, the second thing is, you know, forgiveness doesn't change the past the fact that I forgive Charles isn't going to give me back my eyesight. The fact that I forgive Charles isn't going to take away all that hurt and pain that me and my family experienced all that time, all those years ago. But it does change your future. So forgiveness doesn't change the past, but it does change your future and how you can go forward. So, I mean... I have shared my story with quite a few people and I'm receiving letters I receive and people come to me afterwards. I remember one time I was speaking at a thing in a, in a America it was in a, a church in America and um, this 78 year old woman come up to me after it and said, I haven't spoken to my sister in 40 years. And when I go home tonight, I'm going to phone her. I've always held a grudge, and tonight I'm going to give her a call. And to me, that made it all worthwhile. Hmm. No, I don't know what transpired since that um, but I've met many people over the years that have written to me and have said to me that you know that they were able to let go of an anger that they felt because of what I said um, you know so I uh, you know, and and uh, so I I never underestimate the power of the story, and I'm I would be quietly confident that I think it does, you know, plant a seed for people to develop or nurture or grow, and I do think we all need, you know. Like a seed that needs to be nurtured, needs to be watered, needs nourishment, and I think those, when the seed is planted, then what people need is constant nourishment and messages of forgiveness and support and moving forward like that. You know, um, so I I I would hope that I have influenced people. But not because I want the credit of it, because I think they would be happier because of it. And I also think, look, if we're to build a world that we all want to live in, which is peaceful, then we want to live together. You know, that's the reality. The reality is there are people who are different from us, there are people who will hurt us sometimes. And, um, there are difficult circumstances uh, that we all live in. But ultimately, if we live, want to live in peace, we've got to try to find a way that we can do that. And um, I think that if we are to have true reconciliation in our lives, then it's got to start with yourself. Forget about the other person. It's got to start with you. Uh, And it's, there's no better place for that to start than in your own heart. And the gift of forgiveness is an avenue through which you can begin that process. And like, I forgave Charles before I ever met him. I don't need to meet somebody to forgive them. I don't need to meet somebody to reconcile with them. You know, so, it's it's very possible, you know. Uh, and like, um, like for example, the British Army never apologized for what happened to me, and the soldier, even when I met Charles, he didn't apologize. And if you had asked him, "Are you sorry?" he would have said, no, I haven't been asked to apologise nor do I feel I need to apologise. And he held that position for about six years after I met him and we met all regularly. And I I remember one time somebody saying to me that they wouldn't have met the soldier unless he apologised. Well, you know, if I hadn't have met Charles, then a relationship wouldn't have had a chance to grow. Six years after I met Charles, one night in Derry here, he apologized. Six years later. And there's a couple of lessons in that, but the one thing that I did learn that, you know. If I had have insisted that I have an apology that he said sorry, that would have given Charles a key to a chamber in my heart in my head that only he could open. And instead, all my doors were open. I didn't need Charles to release anything for me. And by meeting Charles without any preconditions, I allowed him, hopefully, to begin a journey. A journey of dealing with what he did. And to maybe in some way challenge himself. And ultimately what happened? He said, sorry. Mm. Was never asked for, never insisted upon. He arrived at that point himself. So, again, you know, sometimes if you're genuine about reconciliation or you're genuine about trying to, you know, find peace in your life, then the way to do that is through reconciliation, as I said. But what you've got to understand is you can't meet the person that you would like that person to be. You've got to allow them to be who they are. They've got to be allowed to live in their space and be the person that they are. Equally, you've got to be allowed to live in your space and be the person that you are. So when you accept that, there's a brilliant freedom in that. But when you accept that, then that allows the relationship to develop, whatever way it develops. And, you know, me and Charles are two complete strangers, really. He's a military man. Our lives would never really meet. We would have very little in common in terms of the trajectory of our lives. His whole life has been military. His 600 years of military history in his family And I, my family is very different, but at least through the process that I've just outlined, there was a a conversation that was able to begin, and I discovered, which seems obvious now, that he was a father, he was a grandfather, he loved his children. He loved his wife. He loved his parents. And he was just a normal human being that done something terrible. Um, and through the process that we embarked upon, we were able to get past the incident.
0: Richard, do you... um Before we move on to to another topic. The last question on forgiveness. I wonder if when you kind of embarked on this journey, um, and maybe you told your friends or your community that you had number one forgiven, um, Charles, and then you were then going to actually seek him out and, and befriend him. Did you have anyone who, I don't know, don't want to use the word traitor, but who almost saw you couldn't understand what you were doing thought that you, you know, couldn't understand the path that you were going on, and, and and was very against it, or was everybody very supportive in in the fact that you were trying to forgive someone who, when you hear the story, unless you're someone as compassionate as you are, it is hard to imagine yourself to get to such a place where you'd want to forgive a man who robbed you of your sight at the age of ten or eleven. How how were th- you? How was your community in when they found out your decision to try to forgive this man?
2: Yeah, well, I've never experienced any sort of real strong uh, resistance at all to me wanting to meet the soldier. What I did experience was some people saying that um, fair play to Richard, but I I couldn't do or I wouldn't do what he's doing. Mm -hmm. The the person that probably would have worried about letting others down most was me. I, in my mind, I was very conscious of other victims of the Troubles, especially victims of British Army violence. And I can remember when I got the know charles's name and You know, all sorts of emotions come in then, things that I never thought I had. I felt weepy. I felt nerves in my stomach, anxiety. You know, Mm -hmm. like, I never had any of those feelings before that point. But I also become very aware that am I betraying my own community? Am I betraying those people who have been so badly hurt by the British Army from my own side of the community? And I did have those thoughts. And uh, I remember one morning I was getting ready to go to work and I heard an interview on the radio with a man called Alan McBride. And Alan's wife was killed in the Schenkel Bomb in Belfast, but Alan was on the radio. I think he was invited to speak at some event, but he was talking about being willing to meet Gerry Adams, and Gerry Adams at that time was the leader of Sinn Fein and was, you know, heavily associated with the IRA, let's say. Mm -hmm. the people that caused the death of his wife. But there would have been people from his own community who would have thought what he was doing was paramount to treason. You know? Yeah. But he was doing it because it was what he wanted to do. And I remember thinking, you know what, Richard? You have to do what you want to do yourself. You have to follow your own convictions. So what was important to me that I didn't re-traumatize my my mother. My daddy was dead. He died in 1978, so he was long dead by the time I got to know the British soldier's name. But my mother was uh, in her late 80s and was still very much alive and, and clued into what was happening. And I didn't want to traumatize her. I didn't want to traumatize any members of my family. So all along the process, I kept them updated. But I met Charles on a Saturday for the first time. And on the Friday morning, I went to my daddy's grave. And I just said, look, daddy, I hope you're happy with what I'm doing. And then in the afternoon, I went down to see my mother. And I said, well, Mammy, you know, it's tomorrow now. I'm going to meet the soldier. And she said to me, would I be all right? And I said, I would. And I said, Mammy, you know, sometime I may bring the soldier back to Derry to meet you. And she said, Richard, if you're happy, I'm happy. Mm. And I think if she had said then, I don't want you doing this for some reason. I couldn't have done it because I couldn't have hurt her any more than what she had been hurt over the years. So I've never really experienced any strong rejection to what I did. I maybe experienced people saying that they couldn't do it. But Richard, it's okay if you do it. And to be honest, this community has been nothing but supportive of everything I did, and meeting the soldier, you know, I get constant encouragement from people that, that think that, you know, what I'm doing is everything from important to being admirable, you know, when, you know, I I appreciate that, because it, it just gives me the confidence to continue it.
1: Thanks for that, Richard. Uh, Moving on, I I wanted to ask, obviously you have a a very strong um, community, strong community base in Derry. I also wanted to ask, did you feel the need to seek out other people who had lost their sight? Because maybe even though your friends are there for you and they want to listen, that maybe you still needed or you felt that you wanted to exchange with people who are in a, a very similar position?
2: No, you know what? I was the complete opposite. Okay. That's the truth. And I, I sometimes think about that still. When I lost my sight, truth be told, the last thing I wanted to I, I, I the last thing I wanted was to be seen as a blind person. And the last thing I wanted was to be mixing in the circles of other people who are blind. Now, I say that, you know, and I'm ashamed of it. But, like, I I think that I was worried about being categorised. And where does that come from in a 10-year-old boy? I don't know where that comes from in a 10-year-old boy, being honest. Like, it, it was some kind of misguided understanding of uh, disability or whatever. I, I i don't know, but all as I knew was people aren't going to see me as a blind person. I'm not going to be treated as a blind person. I don't want to be that person. I want to hang around with the people that hang around me normally. I want to do the things as much as I can that I normally did. And, and I didn't want to feel that I was being farmed off into some kind of institutionalized life. And I resisted that tooth and nail. Now, I cannot explain to you where that came from. I think that it was one of my biggest strengths, but I would acknowledge that it was also a weakness. Obviously, as you get older and you're, you're, you start to think about more as an adult, then you begin to realize that that's a silly way to behave, really. And, uh, that that you begin to um you know, and I, I there's a lot of people that I know and I, I'm friendly with now and then who have disabilities that just completely and utterly inspire me. And um you know, and and, and that's the truth of the matter. I remember there's a guy in Derry here who was blind, a well-known blind guy in Derry called Ronnie Williamson, who passed away many years ago. But Ronnie was a guitar player and sang around the local pubs and, you know, he was a guy that really dealt with blindness very comfortably as far as I could see. And, um, I used to look up to Ronnie and I used to quietly learn from Ronnie and like I learned the guitar and played in bands and stuff like that. And so in many ways, um, there's similarities with the direction my life took, from Rannies or two or Rannies, and uh, you know, there's, there's similarity there. And uh, you know, so in that regard, you know, but in the early days, I wouldn't carry a white stick, for example. Now, I remember them coming to give me a white stick and I wouldn't use it. Because for me, and this is a ten or eleven-year-old boy saying, If I take a white stick, people are going to see me as a blind person. I'm carrying a statement, I am blind. And I don't want people to see me like that. So what did I do? I used the end of a fishing rod. Now what would look more out of place? <laughs> <laughs> like, what would look more out of place walking around Craig and tapping a fishing rod or tapping a <laughs> stick? <how I> <laughs> so, uh, but that's just that sort of warped way of thinking. And but you know, it probably was a thranness and a strength that helped me. At a point in time when I just needed to be like that, but I, and then as I got older, I began to sort of relax into blindness and realize that it's you know that being blind is not such a terrible thing, really. And I shouldn't be ashamed of it. I shouldn't be difficult about other people who have a disability. And you know, it, it's you know it soon left me. But I just I, I still wonder how the hell I ended up feeling like that. <laughs> Yeah, that I want to <laughs>
1: Maybe I was just fishing. <laughs> uh, so. Thanks, Richard. Yeah, that that that's really interesting. Um, I, I I know you're busy. I I wanted to ask you also about the work with uh, children in Crossfire. And um, I guess, yeah, I wanted to know. Y- you mentioned that you're working in Ethiopia and Tanzania, but I guess h- how has your work help you develop over the last 15 years like personally like has it really expanded your previous perceptions and
2: and what's the hopes for the future i God! i mean i never anticipated children crossfire would grow the way it grew and all that sort of stuff i had a real passion uh, to just make a difference in the world and use my experience uh the positive things about my experience to hopefully help others. And um, and when I started the charity, I never knew very much about the development sector, really. The international development sector is what we call it. I didn't know very much about it, really. And uh, as the organisation developed and grew, I I began to learn very quickly. Um, and um, so, I mean, I, it's been the last 24, 25 years have been the most rewarding years of my life, really, and you know I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. I wouldn't want to do anything else. Um, but and and you know I think that you know um, when you get up every morning and you're part of a team that bring about change in the world for some people, uh, then it's a very rewarding thing to do. And, you know, I always say that, you know, if there's a child in Ethiopia or Tanzania today having access to food, water, or education, it's not because of me. It's not even because of Children of Crossfire but it's because of those people in my life that showed me compassion. Mm. And that's very, that's very important for me because the, the person I am, the work that I do has been, without a shadow of a doubt, influenced by the fact that I was shot and blinded by her upper bullet. But not so much being shot and blinded, but the response to being shot and blinded. The important part about my story is not really being shot. It's what happened from the moment I was shot. That's the important part about my story. To me, that's where all the lessons are. And as I say, because of my parents and their influence, because of the the way that my teachers and my friends responded to me because of the help that I received throughout my life, even today. What happened? A children in Crossfire evolved. And it's an organization that is impacting positively on the lives of children elsewhere in the world. So I certainly can't take the credit for that. It's the people that showed me what real compassion was, what the potential was, and how you can respond to a situation that is potentially traumatic and tragic to use it in a positive way. So, I mean, that's that genuinely where I, I feel, about it
1: you know it's fantastic
0: thanks richard yeah i really appreciate that beautiful beautiful message richard before before we let you go we always just do one little thing at the end of the podcast to try and help anyone who may be listening and that's to ask um the guest for their tips um, and how they keep uh their mental health in check. So I was wondering from such an inspirational person like yourself, if there was a, if there are any little, um, nuggets that you could, uh, share with us. So maybe we could also find ourselves on the path that you are now.
2: I, um, I mean, I think what's worked for me as taking control. Of your own life, taking control of your own thoughts. And, you know, um, don't always rely on other people. Rely on yourself, but rely on the good things within yourself. In a physical way, like I said, when lockdown happened and I was presented with a different challenge, I introduced routine into my life. That was important for me. I got up in the morning and done 30 minutes on a treadmill. There was mornings I could have lay on and not bothered doing that. But every day of lockdown, I done 30 minutes on the treadmill in the morning. Then I made my breakfast. Then I sat down to work. Then I went to walk at lunchtime. Then I worked, and then I went to walk after lunch, or after work. Why? To keep myself mentally right. I find walking a brilliant therapy, first of all. And the other thing is, you know, I suppose in a a bigger way, I think that you can improve your own sense of well-being, improve your own sense of happiness by helping others. Like you've often heard the phrase, you know, in every act of generosity, there's an element of selfishness. And there is. I feel good when I do something good. But the Dalai Lama would call that good selfishness. So there's good selfish and there's bad selfish, And there's nothing wrong with feeling good about yourself. So if you can go and help somebody, if you can do a kind act, then if you're feeling good about yourself, why not do more of it? Why not feel good about yourself? Why not do things that make you feel good? And um, that's all that I would advise people. For me, what has worked for me is I have, I accept the fact in life that you're going to meet challenges. Look, I'm blind for the rest of my life. There's nothing I can do about that. If I focus on what my blindness won't allow me to do, then I'm going to be a very unhappy person. For example, I can't see my children. That's one of the hardest things for me in my life, that I can't see my children. If anything would make me cry, that would make me cry. And it does make me cry very often when I can't see my children. I grew up my whole life without seeing my children's faces, without seeing their smiles, and all that sort of stuff. But if I focus only on that thought, then I'm going to be a very unhappy person. But what I can do is I can take my children for a walk. I can sit and watch the television with them. I can tell them stories. I can tickle them. I can throw them up and down. I can bounce them on the sofa. I can do all sorts of fantastic things with my children. So instead of me focusing on the fact that I can't see them, I focus on the fact on the things that I can do with them. I love playing football. As a child, I was football crazy. If I focused on the fact that I couldn't play football anymore, I'd be a very unhappy person. Every person listening to this podcast will have things in their life that frustrate them, that make them unhappy, or they just can't be good at. Don't worry about it. Forget about it. Just navigate around it. Play to your strengths, not your weaknesses. Focus on your ability, not your disability. Focus on what you can do, not what you can't do. If you can't do it, forget about it, ditch it. That's the only thing that I can say to you that's worked for me.
1: Beautiful. Yeah, that's very profound.
0: Thanks, Richard.
2: Thank you. That's great. No, <laughs> hope, you get, <laughs> hope you get something out of all that. No, uh, I,
0: oh, more than plenty. More than plenty.
2: <laughs> oh no, I no, appreciate it. I appreciate you taking the time, uh, and as always, it um whether you realize it or not, when you ask somebody to participate in something like this, it makes them feel important, and you uh, made me feel important today, and I, I really appreciate it.
0: Oh, Absolute pleasure.
1: Oh, very inspirational, for yeah, us, Richard, and we're very happy that you agreed to do to to give us your time. So it it it's mutually. Uh, good selfishness here. Yeah, awesome. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Uh,
0: brilliant. Brilliant. Right. Well, thank you very much, Richard, for coming on. Like, like Jim said, I mean, we have great guests on this podcast, but your message and your story is truly inspirational. So thank you so much for your time. It's been an, a, a real honor um, to be able to speak to you. Um, and hopefully, hopefully, uh, not only the listeners, but even Jim and I can take something away from from this uh, interview because I, I think it's one to one to definitely look out for and one to bear in mind when we're going through our own troubles in life. So I just want to thank you so much for for your message and and for taking the time to speak with us, Richard.
2: It's a real pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thank
1: you, Richard. Thanks so much.
0: Hi guys, thank you for listening to the podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe and leave a five star review if you haven't already. Every review helps us climb the podcast charts so that even more of you can listen to our amazing guests. We really appreciate the support. Remember to tune in next week, but until then, keep safe and have a good one.